Legal Motion listeners, this is the professor, Matt Perkins, and we are coming to you today with a special episode of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Uh, being the off-season, we have decided to branch out a little bit and dig our hands into the history of college football. So what you're going to hear next is a show that Josh and I recorded a couple weeks ago, and we hope you enjoy our discussion. A very unique version of the Illegal Motion podcast. So one of my favorite shows to listen to, one of my favorite podcasts, is The Dollop. And that's a historical podcast where they, uh, they find some weird piece of history, like the worst vice president we've ever had. And they talk about it, and they joke and, and make fun of how dumb people were back in the day. And since imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, uh, I thought over the summer or whatever that every now and then we could do our own version of that based on college football. And so I did the first one. Now the professor, Matt Perkins, he's going to read me a story that I have no idea what it's, what it's going to be about. The only hint he gave me was 1920s. So, uh, Maybe we'll see the galloping ghost. I don't know, but I'm I'm very curious. I'm ready. Are you are you ready to tell the story, Matt? Oh, I am ready. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I have one plug that I should do, though. To be honest, go for it. Uh, I just put up my top twenty-five rankings, and this has quickly become my favorite post to write on the blog because since it's a Big Ten blog, this is the only time I get to weigh in on opinions outside of our podcast on the other team. So. It's up there. It's fun. I somehow have Army ranked. Uh, feel free to see the mental gymnastics I do to get them ranked. And my other 24 teams that I have ranked. All right. Well, um, your blog will be referenced later on in the podcast. Oh, good. Another little tease there. But um, let's go ahead and get started. So, okay. I'm gonna, Josh, I'm going to first pose a, a question to you. Well, I got a counter question. Okay. Before we started recording, you told me to be ready to take some notes. When should I be ready to take some notes? Um, <laughs> should you... our listeners be doing the same? No, I just think you need to take the notes because um, I'm going to pose a question for you, and then in another minute, I'm going to ask you a question that we will answer by the end of the show. Okay. It's almost like you're accusing me of not being a good listener. Um, yeah, well, you, you might want to, you just might want to, you know, keep some notes for this one because there, there, there might be, it might be a little confusing. So, um, but my first question for you, Josh, is, um, what is the most number of teams to ever claim a national title in a single football season? Most number of teams, I'm writing this down, to claim a natty in one season. All right. Um, How many? I'm going to say seven teams did it in, like, 1915, and that's why they introduced polls in the 20s, because things got so confused. Well, you're very close. The answer is six. And right. this, this has happened twice in the 130-plus years of college football history. Um, awesome. In both 1921 and 1981. 
21 and 81. And Alabama claimed in both years, I'm assuming, right? Um, actually, Alabama claimed them in neither. So, but... Um, oh, so, the other 56 years. Yeah. Um, so, though, with 81, though, there's a pretty large consensus that Clemson is the true champion. Yeah. Um, they were 12-0, and 0, led by first-team All-ACC quarterback Homer Jordan, All-American linebacker Jeff Davis, and they were the true champion. And Taj uh, Boyd was also on that team. Uh, I mean, he was, he was there since, I think, the uh, first Roosevelt administration. Yeah, sounds so, right. Um, well, uh, Jeff Davis was the MVP of both uh, the ACC and the Orange Bowl victory over 9-3 and three Nebraska. Um, yet somehow Nebraska is actually still credit- credited with a national title that year by the National Championship Foundation, which is one of the many services that has handed out national titles over the years. In 1981, also Penn State at 10 and 2, Pitt at 11 and 1, SMU at 10 and 1, and Texas at 10, 1 and 1 were also awarded a national title in one form or another. But uh, each of these schools was number one by only one service, whereas the vast majority, including the important ones, the AP, the Football Writers Association of America, the National Football Foundation, and the UPI, all gave Clemson the deserving uh, national title. So it, it's pretty. What about- what about, the, what about the Helms Athletic Association? Oh, the Helms will be coming up here in a little bit. Yeah. Um, so this that's is a, the, that's the only one I recognize. So this is a pretty clear cut case of who the true champion was that year. Um, yeah. um, is Clemson? Nineteen twenty one? Not so much. So to, yeah. today, Josh, our goal on the podcast is to name the true champion of the nineteen twenty one football season. Okay. Okay, so 60 years before 1981, the landscape of college football was just a little bit different than in 81, um, or as it is today, obviously. It's pretty obvious who the champion is. Yeah. We don't even need to do the rest of the show. Oh, well. <laughs> um, well, we're, we're going we're gonna to need to get into it here, because there are a lot of schools that uh, have uh, somewhat rightful claims to the 1921 title. Um, yeah. So our job today is to really sort things out. All right. But, um, 1921 was one heck of a year for college football. Uh, it saw the first live radio broadcast of uh, a game of West Virginia versus Pitt. Yeah, Vince uh, Scully did it. Uh, <laughs> one of the greatest upsets of all time, Center College over Harvard in the famous C6HO impossible mathematical formula or impo- impossible chemistry formula win, and the first team to build its offense around a forward passing attack, and that was Notre Dame. Mm, yeah. The Irish were involved in a key game uh, to determine the national title. So we'll be talking about them a little bit more later, but they are not one of the contenders. So um, our first contender hails from the West Coast. Yes. I'm going to write this down. First contender. First contender is the Cal, Cal Berkeley. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cal Berkeley, the reigning national champs from 1920. All right. So, All right. Under coach Andy Smith, the boys from Berkeley racked up a 9-0-1 record. Their sole tie, a very ugly 0-0 affair with Washington and Jefferson in the Rose Bowl. Was he in the Witness Protection Agency, by the way? Read his name again. Andy Smith. That's not a real name. Yeah. Um, He may have been – I think he was – he he was probably uh, running for being a draft dodger or something. (laughs) So – we're going to revisit the Washington and Jefferson presidents in a little bit, but um, both of these teams, along with most of the teams in college football, were, at this point were running what was referred to as the short punt offense. Yep. 
Harper's Weekly in 1915 described the short punt offense as the most valuable formation in football. Um, so it was the triple option of the day, but the options were run, pass, and punt. <laughs> and they punted a lot, yeah. often on second and third down. Uh, it was not uncommon for teams to have 15, 18, or even 20 punts in a game. Well, I've always said punting is the best. Josh, I know you're a big fan of the quick kick. So. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, the short punt was actually the brainchild of our boy Amos Alonzo Stagg, the longtime Chicago Maroons uh, yeah. coach. Also, did you know that all, at different times Stagg was also the baseball and basketball coach of Chicago? Good for him. He's, yeah. a triple, he's a triple threat. Fielding Yost is also very famous for utilizing the short punt in his famous point-a-minute hurry-up offense from the early 1900s. Mm. So, but let's get back to Cal. So the Golden Bear coach, Andy Smith, um, he, had a inter- he had a really interesting career. He played his first two years of college football at Penn State um, before transferring to Penn in yeah. 1903 to play under famous coach Cap Williams. <laughs> Immediately following his playing career, he became an assistant coach for the Quakers, and he eventually took over the program when Williams retired in 1909. Following a 30-10-3 record at his alma mater... Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, Smith left to coach Purdue in 1913. And went 10-50. <laughs> uh, he actually went 12-6-3 over the next three years. Highest winning percentage in Purdue history. Probably. Um, however, in 1915, he left Purdue to become the head coach of Cal. Um, now, this may not seem so strange today, but for the time, it was a very curious choice, to say the least. So here was a moderately successful head coach who left Purdue, a school that had, you know, a relatively successful program. And a big um, drum. And to take over a Cal team that had a football program for all of one year. Sort yeah. Of. Cal actually first fielded a football team in 1886, but they stopped competing in intercollegiate football in 1906 in order to play rugby. So, well, yeah. uh, to this day, Cal actually, you know, everyone knows Cal has by far the strongest rugby program in the country, bar none. They have 27 national championships since 1980. They're the reigning champs of the Varsity Cup, which is the college championship tournament, as well as the three-time reigning champs of the Collegiate Sevens. So to say they're dominant is sort of the understatement of the year. I feel like you're saying a lot of nice things about Cal before you explain why they don't deserve the national title. <laughs> You'll see. Um, you're, you're buttering them up for to pull the rug out from under them. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. That's to be determined. So, um, so, but, you know, I digress a little bit. So for 10 years, from 1906 to 1915, Cal did not field a football team. So... Andy Smith. Well, they were too busy protesting the Vietnam War. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> uh, wasn't Vietnam, or I guess, no, Vietnam, uh, what was Vietnam called back in that day? Who, I don't know. Probably French Indochina? Uh, actually, yeah, I think so. Nice work. Yeah. Um, so he leaves West Lafayette. But, I mean, I can't blame him for leaving West Lafayette. No one wants to live there now, especially, and especially back then. What's funny is back in the 20s, he would have had to take a train out there, and the train was probably built by Purdue people. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in his first season in uh, at, in Berkeley, he goes six four and three, which is pretty respectable considering they, he had been recruiting for all of three months. Yeah. So, um, in nineteen eighty, was, was the big game the big game yet, or did no one care about Stanford? Uh, no one cared, quite frankly. Cool. 
Um, So two years later, 1918, Cal wins the Pacific Coast Conference, which is the precursor to the Pac-10 for the first time. And then two years later, 1920, they win their first national title. Uh, And in that year, 1920, they outscore their opponents 510 to 14 and absolutely destroy the Buckeyes in the Rose Bowl 28-0. Well, they were doing all those short punts. Yeah. So now we're in 1921. So they're the reigning national champs. And Cal, again, goes undefeated in regular season play, outscoring opponents this year 312 to 14. Well, the punts weren't as efficient this time. Yes, apparently not. Um, Still pretty impressive, a point differential. Their closest games are 14-0 victories versus Wazoo in a game that was played in Portland, Oregon. So uh, neutral cyclones. And then a 14-0 victory over the Olympic Athletic Club at home. And I was was doing a little research into the Olympic Athletic Club, and it's – Kind of a fascinating place. Um, It's the nation's oldest athletic club in the country, established in 1860. They've hosted five different U.S. US Opens in golf, and they fielded teams in all sorts of sports throughout the years, including football. And so from 1891 to 1934, the Olympic Club played mostly colleges in the Bay Area in football, including Stanford, Cal, St. Mary's, and Santa Clara. Where were they from again? Did you say L.A.? uh, The Olympic Athletic Club's in San Francisco. San Francisco, okay. I didn't know if they were connected to L.A. getting the Olympics uh, in the 30s or whatever. Oh, uh, well, uh, L.A. had the Olympics in 1920. Yeah, same oh, thing. Sorry, sorry uh, 30, 20 or 30, 32, 32. I'm sorry, 1920 yeah. games were in Antwerp. Um, <laughs> That's a deep track of Olympic trivia right there. Oh, trust me, there's more Olympic trivia to come. Um, so uh, this, uh, this Cal team, though, they were led by uh, – a guy who played pretty much every position for them named Brick Muller. Yeah, um, and Brick. Brick was not only a great football player, but also the reigning silver medalist in the high jump from the Olympics in Antwerp in 1920. Well, yeah. So uh, oh, he was first-team first All-American, and do you know why he was called Brick? Um, boy, his dad was a immigrant Irish bricklayer. Uh, no, well, Irish, maybe. He was named Brick because he was a ginger's ginger. He had this massive head of flaming red hair. Yeah. So, uh, the 1921 regular season's over. Cal's undefeated, and they're invited back uh, to play in the Rose Bowl again for the second year in a row. But they turned down the invitation initially because their, uh, their opponent was going to be the presidents of Washington and Jefferson University, and he did not believe that this provided a fair matchup. This was because most of the players on the presidents were a few years older than the average college football player, and the academic rigors of the university were not remotely the same. So like the BYU of the 1920s? Uh, Yeah, like BYU with community college academics. Well, yeah, so it's perfect. Why Why would you not want to face that team? So um, eventually, though, Smith, uh, Smith relented, and the game was played on January 1st, 1922, and ended in a 0-0 tie. Cal came, Cal came into the game uh, as a big favorite, with one sports writer pro- proclaiming that, quote, all I know about Washington and Jefferson is that they're both dead. <laughs> That's a great line. I am stealing it. Thank you. You should. Um, and this was a really ugly one to watch. Uh, the, the teams combined for a total of 186 yards of total offense. Cal only garnered 49. Um, punter. Punted it more. Well, 
punter Archie Nisbet uh, punted 13 times uh, and averaged 39.7 yards per kick. Okay, you have referenced the names Cap, Brick, and Archie, and yet the Cal coach is Andy Smith. Something is going on. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the witness protection is a, a, a very good lead there. So, um, so uh, but punter Archie Nesbitt was, uh, you know, he's widely credited for keeping Washington and Jefferson out of the end zone with all these punts. So apparently the field was an absolute disaster, and the Cal couldn't run their typical offense and had to resort to, like, a power game. They were kind of a, more, a bit more of a spread attack as short punt formations go. Their typical <laughs> offense of punting. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they were – punching the ball today, coach. <laughs> so uh, Cal had to resort to a bit more of a power game, and they were Ill- ill-equipped to deal with uh, the larger, older opponents. So – but this game, however, was a kind of bunch of like, they're playing a bunch of like fifty-year-old men, <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of geriatrics out there. So, but um, this was this game though was a culmination of a pretty impressive season from our second national title claimers, Washington and Jefferson. Yeah, Wash and Jay. So Washington and Jefferson's head coach was a man named Greasy Neal. <laughs> Um, so, uh, and the presidents heading to the Rose Bowl were ten and zero. And Greasy Neal, I went on a deep dive on Greasy Neal. This they went ten zero and one then after the Rose Bowl. Yes. So uh, this dude is freaking fascinating. So Greasy Neal, uh, definitely one of the more interesting figures from the time period. He not only coached college football, but also college basketball, college baseball, and he coached uh, the Philadelphia Eagles for a decade in the NFL, winning back-to-back titles in 1948 and 1949. With uh, Roger Worsky. Uh, yeah, Jaws was in his second decade at the helm of the Eagles at that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, but he first attended West Virginia Wesleyan College, um, and after he graduated, he played Major League Baseball for parts of nine seasons from 1916 to 1924. And including, uh, he batted 357 in the 1919 World Series. Uh, if you'll remember, uh, the, that's the Black Sox scandal year. Yeah, was he a fixer or did he win? No, he was on the Reds. He won. Ooh, so he got, he's got a ring. I, heard, I, like him. I like him more than Andy Smith already. So, well, his name is Greasy. Like, obviously, you yeah. like him more than Andy. So you're probably asking yourself, though, how does a guy who's playing pro baseball also coach football? Uh, so, because he's awesome. Yes. Yeah, so, well, apparently, when football season came around, he just up and left the team. He, was, he, played, he played his entire career for the Reds, except for, like, a 24-game stint on the Phillies. Yeah, so he's like Deion Sanders. So the only, uh, the only time he, during football season that he actually played baseball was during the 1919 World Series. Um, but by the way, he was also a pro football player at, as well as a coach. He well, played, only shows up for the big games. <laughs> he played in the Ohio League from 1917 to 1919, including being Jim Thorpe's teammate on the Canton Bulldogs in 1917. Wow. So basically the only other star he needs to intersect with is Jesse Owens. And he's completed everything. Owens a little bit later, though. Owens, you know, that's 1936. Um, Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Well, he he was also not only a a pro football player, but also a pro football coach, coaching the Dayton Triangles in 1918, (laughs) and and as well as playing for various other teams. Uh, Simultaneously as... Huge rivals of... Simultaneously as 
coaching and playing for the Dayton Triangles. He was also the head coach of Muskingum College. Josh, do you know their mascot? The what college? Muskingum. Muskingum. They are the uh, the uh, Weeping Willows. <laughs> I have no idea. The Fighting Muskies. Wow. I mean, that makes sense now that I think about it. Um, uh, and he also later would become the head coach at West, his alma mater, West Virginia Wesleyan, as well as the Marietta Pioneers. But 1921 was... Uh, was Greasy's first season as the head coach of Washington and Jefferson. And so what does he do in his downtime? Because right now you've listed 30 jobs, uh, multiple professional sports, coaching at two different schools, and fixing a World Series. Yeah, I mean, he was a pretty busy guy. I assume on his downtime, he ran a brothel. So... That's how he got the nickname Greasy. Yeah. Uh, so in his first season, 1921, the presidents were the beasts of the East, though. They outscored opponents 312 to 33. So, well, they gave up more points than Cal, though. Yeah, they gave up a couple more points than Cal. Uh, Grantland Rice, the famous sports writer, uh, best described his team. This is a great quote. Uh, quote, uh, the power of this Eastern Eleven lay in its ability to rip through and smear opposing plays. Its uncanny faculty in this department was pronounced especially so in a season where the attack was featured and the offensive off, and the offense often given no great attention. Any attack in the country, including that be- bewildering onslaught launched by Notre Dame, would have found great trouble in hammering out any extensive distance against Neal's machine. Nice. So, I like, I like smear. That's a word you don't hear enough. Yeah. Um, well, probably because I don't. I don't know if you played this on the playground when you were growing up, but we always played smear the queer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I, apparently is just uh, not quite PC enough these days. So. But anyhow, uh, they had a pretty impressive season themselves. So uh, Washington Jefferson. And it's now called tackle the transgender. <laughs> It just needs to be offensive to whatever is the uh, the popular movement of the day. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So, but Washington Jefferson, they beat powerhouses Syracuse, Pitt, and Detroit during the regular season and earned themselves a bit to the Rose Bowl. But the presidents had a little bit of a problem. They couldn't really afford to go to Pasadena. So they scraped up enough money to send 11 players. So everyone would have to play the entire game. Perfect. Uh, so they uh, eventually got enough money with one player mortgaging his house to pay his way. Um, minor problem, though, on the train journey, uh, which obviously took like a week, um, one of the presidents contracted pneumonia. Um, so, so now they've got 10 guys. Perfect. Luckily for them, Ross Bucky Buchanan, one of the reserves on the team, was secretly stowed away on the train. Um, awesome. And he was given the sick player's ticket and roster spot. Perfect. So, uh, By the way, I feel like mortgaging your house today would be an NCAA violation. Uh, I think having a house today would be an NCAA violation. <laughs> So, um, but th- this Rose Bowl, you know, was one of the more notable games uh, in college football history. With it has the record for fewest passing yards in a game, zero. 
um, the only scoreless game in Rose Bowl history. And it also featured the first freshman to play in a Rose Bowl, Washington Jefferson's Herb Koff, the first black quarterback, Washington Charles Fremont West, and the only player to ever play in two Rose Bowls for two different teams and to win both. And that is Hal Erickson, um, who also won as part of 1919's Great Lakes Navy squad. Uh, Perfect. So the 0-0 tie led these two squads to splitting the national title. But Cal was actually uh, got more services to dub them the champs. Um, And after the the following two seasons, Cal would win next two national titles as well during the golden era of the program. So we've now got two teams out of the way. We've got Cal and Washington and Jefferson out of the way. So it's time for us to move on to our next co-champ. That is the Cornell Big Red. Uh, they went 8-0 and and outscored opponents 392-21. to All right. Including a, a lovely little 110 to nothing win over Case Western Reserve. <laughs> well, you know, maybe they should have played the starters instead of the reserves. <laughs> um, but their toughest test of the year was actually a 14-0 victory at home over Springfield College. Uh, of Massachusetts. Uh, they only played two away games, though, the entire year. Once at the Polo Grounds, demolishing Columbia 41-7. to You know, I'm going to have to lower them. They look. They seem to have the worst resume that strength the schedule. And uh, the other victory, a 41 nothing victory over Penn at Franklin Field in Philadelphia in their season finale. So they were coached by a man named Gil Doby, and it was his second year at the helm of the Big Red, and he had just come over from Navy. Um, originally, Doby was uh, an end and a quarterback for the Goofs uh, from 1900 to 1902. So, uh, but in 1906, Doby became the head coach of North Dakota Agricultural, which is now the Bison of North Dakota. Yeah. Uh, but he was the head coach of not just football, but basketball as well. In 1908, Doby moved to Seattle to coach the Washington Huskies. And in the next nine years, his record was 58-0-3. That is like the exact opposite of Tyrone Willingham's record. (laughs) So uh, it also included a 40-game winning streak, which at the time was the longest streak in history. It's now number two behind the Oklahoma teams of the mid-50s. Um, awesome. So he left the Huskies to become the head coach of uh, the Middies uh, in 1917 and went 18-3 in his three seasons in Annapolis. Perfect. And to this day, he has the best winning percentage in Navy history. Uh, 1920, he left Annapolis for Ithaca and settled in at Cornell, where he would be the coach for the next 16 years. 1921, the season in question, was his second season and the first of uh, three consecutive ones with claimed national titles for the Big Red. Right. So at this time, Cornell was an independent, but they played three other Ivies, Penn, Columbia, and Dartmouth, as well as some of the other local New York teams, St. Bonaventure, University of Rochester, and Colgate, as well as Case Western and Springfield. So, and was Dartmouth anything to write home about at this time? Uh, Dartmouth was a middling team at this point. Okay. So They're better than what they are today. Um, I don't know, baby. Dartmouth back on the rise. Um, <laughs> so during this year, during 1921, Doby won his 100th career game, which at that point it took him 108 contests to win 100 games. So it made him the fastest coach in history to 100 wins. 
Um, so he was uh, one uh, at that point. He was one hundred three, one hundred five and three. So he's like Urban Meyer of the day, just jumping around, winning wherever he goes. Pretty much. So um, his that record of fastest to one hundred games though was actually broken by our boy Lance Leopold in twenty fourteen at UW Whitewater, who did it in one hundred and six games. Nice. So nice. um, nineteen thirty six though his last year at Cornell uh, in nineteen thirty six. It's going to take him a few more than one hundred and six to get to one hundred wins at Buffalo. Uh, yeah, definitely. So, uh, 1936, he ended his career on a sour note when he left to coach BC for three seasons. Uh, that will not be discussed any further. Uh, uh, but you didn't answer, you didn't answer my question about him though. What's that? Well, if he was like the urban Meyer of the day, did he eat pizza? Um, I, I don't know. I'm going to assume that he did, but uh, you know, I, you, you got me there. So, well, I mean, that's the lasting image I have of Urban Meyer. Um, what's notable about his 33 years of coaching career, though, his, his career record was 182, 45, and 15, which was good for a 780, 780 winning percentage, and he coached 14 undefeated seasons. Is that the highest winning percentage of all time? Uh, no, I do not believe so. No. Um, but uh, that year, 1921, Cor- Cornell won the Helms Athletic Foundation national title, as well as the Park H. Davis National Championship Foundation and Hoolgate System uh, titles. So they had they uh, got four different services named them national champs of the same amount as Cal. So Cal and Cornell both have four systems giving them a national title. Washington and Jefferson has one. So that's our third team, uh, Cornell. All so, right. Let's stay relatively close by to Cornell and go to number four, another undefeated team who claimed a share of the 1921 national title. That's the Lafayette Leopards at 9-0. and yeah. They were 9-0. and They outscored opponents 274-26. to uh, That's and, not very impressive. The other teams were all in the 300. Yeah. So, you know, keep that in mind. Um, these are the kind of things I, want, I expect you to be writing down. Oh, I've, I've got them all written down. So um, they were uh, 9-0, and and they got national titles from two different services, and they had very notable wins against Pitt, 6-0, and at Fordham, 28-7, at Penn, 38-6, and against rival Lehigh, 28-6. So Penn lost to both Cornell and Lafayette. Correct. What else did they do? Uh, what else did Penn do that year? Yeah. Um, that year, Penn also because uh, if they went like eight and two, then that's kind of impressive. But if they went like zero oh and ten, then like that just further harms Cornell and Lafayette's claim. Um, See how I'm using common opponents? I like that. I like yeah, that a lot. Scientific. People thought I was just going to joke around, but no, I'm, I'm taking this seriously. Um, so that year, uh, Penn ended with a 4-3-2 and two record. So they are like the equivalent of a 5-17 and 17 making a bowl game. That's mm, 6-16. Six and 16. They were better than 500. Mm, well, barely. All right. So um, in that that Penn team 
tied Dartmouth and tied Swarthmore, um, but had victories over an 89-0 victory over Delaware, 20-0 over Franklin and Marshall, 7-0 over Gettysburg, uh, 21-7 over VMI. They lost to Pitt 28-0, lost to Lafayette 38-6, and lost to Cornell 41-0. Now, I understand that Delaware game, though, was weird because Joe Flacco rolled his ankle in the first quarter. <laughs> yeah, so obviously, you know, they were behind the eight ball there. Yeah, it's, it's tough to come back from that. So, um, but all their tough tests that, that season, aside from Pitt, were on the road. So they were road warriors this year. Okay. Um, so their, their schedule was definitely tougher than Cornell's. Uh, I think that's you know, pretty much a given. Um, but that Pitt victory was especially sweet for head coach Jock Sutherland. Okay, Andy Smith's name is just getting worse and worse. Yes, I know. Um, there are some great names here. So Jock Sutherland, who's actually Scottish, um, was... Yeah. Did he play in a kilt? Uh, Lord, I hope so. Um, he was actually an All-American as a Pitt Panther in 1917. Now, that 1917 team that he played for at Pitt were known as the Fighting Dentists. Yeah. Because at times, every player on the field was a dental student. Well, that's how Dan Marino got such a beautiful smile. Um, so aside from being a consensus All-American in 1917, he was also a varsity wrestler and the captain of the track team and actually taught classes at, Penn as well, at Pitt as well <laughs> in dentistry. Wow. Awesome. I like this guy already. So, um, you know, after this, uh, he's headed, uh, he becomes the head coach at Lafayette. Um, and then, you know, so he beats his alma mater in 1921. Three years later, 1924, he replaced his old coach at uh, Pitt. His old coach was Pop Warner. Yeah. So um, in 15 years at Pitt after that, he compiled a 111, 20, and 12 record and had his own version of the single wing offense. So he did not run the short punt. He ran the single wing. Um, So he was a little bit better coach than Walt Harris. (laughs) Well, his own offense was known as the Sutherland Scythe, which is a great name for the offense. Um, and he won, depending on who you ask, to ask five or six national titles at his alma mater, Pitt. Um, What's depressing is all these old-timey offenses sound infinitely times better than what Greg Davis was running. Uh, you mean the, the bubble screen offense? Yes, the inaptitude offense. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, he, but he ended up resigning from Pitt in 1938 in a spat with school chancellor John Gabbert Bowman um, because Bowman instituted a policy of de-emphasis for the football program, less athletic scholarships, and less recruiting funds. Oof. Yeah, the same thing happened at Virginia. Every now and then you get these random presidents who just hate sports. Yeah, we and, you know we, we don't know why that happens, but off off topic. But these presidents really didn't think ahead. Have you heard of the like Gonzaga theory or whatever? No, I didn't. I've, I'm not familiar. So with like that. after Gonzaga made their first Sweet Sixteen, they started getting like twice the amount of applications than they did before. Mm-hmm. And they started getting more donations from alums mm-hmm. and like were able to build a dorm to get more people in, more people in meant more tuition, more tuition meant paying professors more and be more competitive. And their entire university portfolio like, like was enhanced 
by basketball. I know that the, I know that the year that George Mason made the Final Four, there uh, the applications more than doubled. Yeah. So these these dumb presidents in the like twenties and thirties are going the opposite way, being like, "Oh, we don't need sports." Yeah. So, um, well, get, getting back to those who need, don't need sports, uh, we, we get back to Sutherland. So after 1938, he took oh, a year. Oh, rest our dental laurels. So he, t- he takes a year off, and then after that, he goes to coach in the NFL for the uh, Brooklyn Football Dodgers um, <laughs> yeah. for two years. Then he joins the Navy in World War II. Vince Scully also called those games. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he, ret- he joins the Navy in World War II uh, and then returns to the program as the coach of the Steelers for two years in 1946 before his untimely death in 1948. Mm, yes. Plus, and then he was replaced by Bill Cowher. Uh, um. So, uh, but a completely he, obliterated Chuck Knoll's history right there. We're going to get an angry email from a Steelers fan. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, um, deal with it. Um, so, but this 1921, this 1921 Lafayette team was his first national title winner of all of the national titles. But there's not, you know, besides the schedule, there's nothing really terribly unique about this team. But, you know, two different services gave them a national title. All right. So, well, all those road games probably impressed people. Yeah, so I, I, I think the road games are quite impressive. The quality of competition is pretty decent. Yeah. Um, but now we get to our fifth. The penultimate national champion is the Harvard of the South, Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. The Commodores went 7-0-1 and, um, and claimed the Berryman Service national title after they, out- after they outscored their opponents only 161-21. to Well, you know, their punts weren't as efficient. So they were co-champions of the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association. Which had like 80 teams in it, didn't it? It's 28 teams. Yeah. Um, so they did not play a full round robin. No. So, but they did play the Center, Co- Center College, who uh, beat Harvard in the crazy uh, – sorry, they were co-champs of Center College, who beat Harvard in the crazy game. Do you know the Center College mascot? The Center College uh, Sundials. The Center College Praying Colonels. <laughs> awesome, love it. Um, one of my uh, one of my other uh, my other favorite mascot from the SIAA at that time was the Oglethorpe Stormy Petrels. <laughs> yes. So uh, Stormy Petrels would have made a strong case on our uh, on our nickname bracket. So, um, but so the SIAA had a four-way tie for the league title um, with Center College, Vandy, Georgia Tech, and Georgia. Now, so the only team that Vandy played out of those teams was Georgia, and they tied that game seven-seven. So, um, can you name any of the other uh, twenty-four teams in the SIAA? Uh, I think I remember, like, seeing Davidson in it. Is that true? Um, at that point, Davidson was not in the SIA. Was uh, William and Mary? Uh, no. I'm not doing so well. Uh, let's go with a bigger school, then. How about Tennessee? Yes. Yeah. Oh, right. Pretty much the entire SEC, save for Missouri and Texas A&M. Well, I mean, that's what the SEC should be today, too. Yeah, so the entire SEC, uh, some other notable schools, Furman, 
Transylvania, Transylvania College. Not the Paladins. Uh, the Citadel. Oh, the Cheedets. Yup. Um, Georgetown, but not the one in Washington, D.C., the one in Kentucky. Well, that's not Kentucky. Wofford. Millsaps College from, Tel- from Tennessee. Millsap College? Millsaps. Millsaps. All right. Uh, Mississippi A&M. Awesome. Mercer. It's probably Mississippi State now. I'm uh, Mississippi A&M is now Mississippi State, yes. Oh, but there's also <laughs> Mississippi College, uh, which was the Mississippi College Choctaws. Choctaws. Uh, as well as the Siwanee Tigers, also known as the University of the South. Um, amongst the other teams. So lots of, you know, interesting schools in the SIAA. Um, Millsaps was the bottom of the barrel. They went 0-3-1 on the season. Well, they were rebuilding. They were rebuilding. Yeah. So uh, also, random aside, uh, my parents' dog was uh, is, a rescue, <laughs> is a rescue dog, and it was originally named Millsaps after Millsaps College. Awesome. And totally random. Yes, totally random. So, um, but, uh, so, but I want to go back to center college before we get to to Vandy center college had a pretty good year that year. They were 10, one and O. Um, and they, the only, their only loss was in their bowl game, which was against Texas A&M in the Dixie classic in Dallas. Um, they lost on the cotton bowl, right? Uh, yeah, so the Aggies, the Aggies that year were six one and two, um, and won the game twenty two to fourteen. So now was Bear Bryant there yet? Uh, I, I assume he was there. Yeah, of course. Um, was he either there or Maryland or Kentucky? So what's really interesting about the Center College team, though, that was actually their second bowl game of the season. Well, yeah, that makes sense. So, for, so the the Praying Colonels, uh, the week before the Dixie Classic, played Arizona in the San Diego Christmas Classic, a game so classic that they played it for all of two years. Can you please edit this section out because we're going to be giving ESPN and all the bowl games tons of ideas. So we already have like fifty bowl games now. If they let teams play multiple games, we're going to be seeing like. Teams in several bowl games. I mean, I'm not mad at it. You will be mad at it when Wisconsin plays the Sun Bowl, followed up by like the Potato Bowl, the BBVA Compass Bowl. Yeah, well, that's one of my favorites. Uh, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of BBVA. I shop there all the time. I thought you were uh, more of a Belk Bowl kind of guy. Well, you know, Belk is a nice department store that is nowhere anywhere in the Midwest or the West. Yeah, because it's not north of the Mason-Dixon line. Well, you know, that's kind of what Robert Ely should have done. Well, let's get back to the Commodores. (laughs) So um, the most impressive victory for this Commodore team was over Texas at the Texas State Fair in Dallas. Uh, They won the game 20 to nothing, even though they were 14-point underdogs. It was like a really good way to ruin your fare. Yeah. So coming into the game, Texas was the reigning SWAC champs, uh, having gone undefeated in the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was also the first of a seven-game series between Vandy and Texas. Every year at the Texas State Fair from 1921 to 1928, the Longhorns played the Commodores in Dallas. Which, it's not, it's not really a home-and-home. Home. It's a you-come-to-us-every-year. Yeah. So, um, but you it's know, almost like the Vanderbilt coach just loved Ferris wheels, and that's why he scheduled it. Had the, had the Ferris wheel even been invented in 1921? 
I'm sure it had. Yeah, it had. I thought it debuted at like the World's Fair in like 1896 or something. Or like St. Louis, yeah. Sure, that was 1904. Yeah. Um, so, um, but so they, you know, Vandy coming to the game, they're big underdogs, and so as the story goes, Commodore head coach Dan McGugan. Um, <laughs> took, Can you repeat that name for me. <laughs> Dan McGugan. <laughs> oh, McGugan. <laughs> Smith gets Andy Smith gets worse and worse. Sounds like that sounds like a euphemism that like a fifth or sixth grader does when they first like kind of realize what breasts are. <laughs> like uh, be like, hey Matt, oh she had these magugans. Yeah, check out the magugans on her. <laughs> um, so what? The, but so before the game, as the story goes, Commodore head coach Dan McGugan took his entire team to the grave of former Vanderbilt All American quarterback. Irby Rabbit Curry. Yeah, win one for the rabbit. Uh, yeah. And so well, Curry, um, he had died in combat during World War I. Mm, he should have been more like a rabbit. So he, he had been an All-American in, uh, for Vandy and died, you know, just after he graduated in 1918. Um, and he gave, apparently, McGugan gave a very rousing address to his squad. Um, part of it go, he, he's said to have said, quote, you are about to be put to an ordeal which will show the stuff that's in you. What a, what a glorious chance you have. Every one of you is going to fix his status for all time in the minds and hearts of his teammates today. How you fight is what you will be remembered by if any shirk the lord pity him he will be degraded in the hearts of the rest as long as they live it was so rousing vanderbilt hasn't had a winning season since (laughs) so uh during in in the game the doors defense was dominant over the longhorns they had two pick sixes um uh, among five total interceptions on the day and they only threw it, like, five times back then, too. So uh, that quarterback was probably, like, 0 of 5, five interceptions. Actually, Texas uh, put up 17 pass attempts in that game. Wow. So, um, but sports writer Blinky Horn <laughs> wrote of the game, quote, Vandy outcharged, outfought, and outgamed the boastful Texans. Their I wish his name was Blinky McGugan. <laughs> their courage was finer. Their stamina was greater. Thrust into the throes of a Turkish bath day, which blistered tongues oh and made legs weary, the McGuganites shook off the galling heat and won a hellish battle on a hellish afternoon. Oh, my God. Could he have used more, like, sexual imagery? Thrust into a Turkish bath. Um, wow. So this was actually Texas's only loss on the season. So this is a pretty impressive victory. Um, right. Commodores followed this victory with back-to-back wins over Tennessee, who was 6-2-1 and one on the year, and Alabama, uh, who was 5-4-2 and two on the year. And uh, then in week seven, they played reigning conference champs Georgia, who was known to have the best line in the South. So, mm, the Georgia, opposite of the Mark Richt era. Pretty much. Um, so Georgia got up 7 nothing in the second quarter on a short touchdown run, and there was no more scoring until the fourth quarter when Vandy attempted and recovered an onside kick from scrimmage and returned it for a touchdown. <laughs> awesome. So it was, it was a 25-yard onside kick from scrimmage from the Georgia 40, which they ran in 15 yards for a touchdown. I love it on so many levels. First, like, 
why can't we still do that in today's game? But also, it's really nice to know that Georgia has been crapping the bed in humorous fashion for 100 years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Coach would really appreciate that. <laughs> so the final tilt he of the year. He would agree. He would agree. Yeah, well, the final tilt of the year came against a 6-1 and Siwani Tigers squad. Um, and this was described as the muddiest game in football history, with players playing in knee-deep mud and water. <laughs> so, um, so let's get. So, so they had a lot of very impressive victories on the season. Hey, you want to play the game tomorrow when the rain dies down? Nah, we got it. We're good. We got this. So, um, this. Uh, so Magookin was actually the coach of the Commodores for thirty years, but this was by far his finest team. Magookin himself had played under Fielding Yost at Michigan, and also utilize the aforementioned short punt formation. Without a doubt, he is the greatest coach in bandy history. So, I got a question about this punt thing. Uh-huh. So, was it like rugby, where you can kick it, run down, and recover it? Or were people so bad at fielding that there were just all these muffed punts? Like, what was the rationale of doing this? Because it seems like if you punt it like 40 yards, it's a huge chunk play. But I'm not sure how they got, like, how they retained possession. Yeah, so my understanding is that it was basically the entire game was a field position game. Okay. Um, the only way you could recover it is if you were doing the onside kick from scrimmage. Okay. Um, so, like, so you're just waiting for the opponent to shank a punt. So, like, for the opponent to shank a punt or to intercept a pass. Or to cover a fumble. So, like, you you kick it off, and let's say the kickoff goes to, like, the 30, because they didn't kick it as far back then. Mm-hmm. You run, like, a play, and let's say you, like, lose yards. So you're like, oh, it's second and 15. It's hard to make that up. We'll just punt it. You kick it, and you pin them at, like, the 20. And then they do something. They can't make it, so they punt, and it's, like, out to midfield. Yeah. So it, and you that you punt again and pin your opponent like the five. Exactly. Okay. So there are a lot of safeties during this era. I kind of like, like, I don't know if I would like it as much as today's game, but it'd be really fun to take a time machine back and just watch one of these things. Yeah. So, um, so McGugan, though, this was his, uh, he's the greatest coach in Vandy history, and he is also the holder of a couple interesting records. He's the only head coach in history to ever win his first three career games by 60 or more points. Nice. The only one to win his first 11 games by 20 or more points. Yeah, he started out with a bang. Yeah, so during his first year... in uh, the head like first- the opposite of Daryl Hazel. <laughs> During his first year was 19, of 1904, the, the Commodores outscored their opponents 452 to 4. That's pretty good. Yeah. So that year, writer Fuzzy Woodruff. <laughs> My God, is he related to Fuzzy Zeller? I certainly hope so. Um, Fuzzy Woodruff said of McGugan, quote, <laughs> the, the, Repeat that, what you just said. It's so absurd. Writer Fuzzy Woodruff said of McGugan, quote, the plain facts of the business are that McGugan stood out in the South like Gulliver among the native sons of Lilliput. Oh, my God. There was no foe man worthy of the McGugan steel. People read newspapers with straight faces back then, too. That was like ordinary language. Yep. 
So McGugan is credited with the person being the most responsible for the progress of Southern football. Okay. So we can blame him for the rise of the SEC. Um, he, was, he was one of the first coaches to ever utilize the onside kick and to utilize pulling guards. All right. So his 1921 squad was also the first stop for future Alabama head coach Wallace Wade, who was, nice. who was an assistant uh, under McGugan uh, for the Doors that year. Now, that is revolutionary because I feel like when I read about these old-timey teams, I never hear about assistants or coaching staff. Yes. So this was, this was the only team that I found that even listed an assistant coach. Interesting. So McGugan was kind of a slacker. Uh, yeah, or he was a genius and good at delegating. No, he was he was lazy. He's going to state fairs. He's like just relaxing in Nashville. He's going over to Sun Records. He sounds like an absolute asshole. I hate this Magoogan guy. I'm off the Magoogan train. <laughs> so this was my, my boy Greasy up to. Oh, God. Um, so this was the last year of the SIAA, um, as all the powerhouse schools left to form the Southern Conference, which was the precursor to the SEC. Well, that's unfortunate. So that's five teams. We have one team left claiming yeah. the 1921 National this is the one. This is the one team I know about. Yes. So it is obviously the one nearest and dearest to your heart, the Iowa Hawkeyes. Yeah. Uh, you, saved, you saved this show for when Iowa had a calamitous, calamitous loss, didn't you? No, actually I didn't. Um, I just happened to finish it now. So, <laughs> um, so this Hawkeye squad was led by Howard Jones, who you named as the fourth best coach in Hawkeye history. Yeah, he would have been, he would have been the greatest, but he didn't stay terribly long in Iowa, like five or six years. Yeah. So the Hawks were selected as national champions that year by the Billingsley Report and Park H. Davis. Yep, the the two most prestigious. Uh, Billingsley was actually prestigious. Uh, Davis actually named four different national champions that year. Well, I mean, Davis is just so prestigious he couldn't make up his mind. So uh, this was Jones' sixth year as the Hawkeye head man and among his finest. That year, the Hawks went 7-0 and 5-0 in conference, and uh, they beat Notre Dame in their closest game of the year, 10-7 in Iowa City. Mm. Uh, and uh, so in the season, uh, uh, the Hawks opened, uh, they, they, they opened the year against Knox College, uh, winning 52-14 to and holding them to zero first downs. Yeah. Um, the game against the Irish was uh, their second game of the season, held on October 8th, and it was the first meeting of the two schools. So, and, But coming into the game, the boys from South Bend were riding a 20-game winning streak after going undefeated in both 1919 and 1920. So the early October tilt in Iowa City was the first game that the Irish ever donned their infamous green jerseys. Uh, this was because they thought the Navy was too close in color to the Hawkeyes' black jerseys. Okay. So they, th- this was Dan Devine before Dan Devine. Yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't wear road white uniforms, evidently. Apparently not. <laughs> so um, on this particular Notre Dame team was also Eddie Anderson, who, as you well know, coached the 1939 Ironman team featuring Niall Kinnick. Yeah. Um, this team also had... Uh, all-American fullback and future Notre Dame head coach, Hunk Anderson. <laughs> okay. Um, Notre Dame also had uh, reigning Olympic 400-meter hurdle bronze medalist, Gus Desch, 
Yeah, um, Andy Smith was just felt like an idiot whenever he went anywhere. Uh, and all Americans, Johnny Mohart and Buck Shaw. <laughs> Um, in the game, Iowa struck first when an All-American fullback, Gordon Locke, plowed into the end zone in the first quarter. And it was quickly, and was quickly followed by a field goal, putting the Hawks up 10 nothing. Yeah, Gordy. In the second quarter, um, Johnny Mohart threw a 30-yard touchdown pass to Ed Kelly, just cut the score to 10-7. Um, uh, there was no scoring in the for the rest of the second or the third quarter. And in the fourth quarter, Mohart missed a 40-yard drop kick that would have tied the game. Um, the Irish, uh, after this game, they lost, but they wouldn't lose again until the the last game of the next season, 1922, to Nebraska. So that seems like the most impressive win that I've heard so far. It's, it's one of the most impressive wins of any team. I, this and the Vandy win over Texas, I think, are the two most impressive yeah, wins. I was going to say those, those are the two best that I've now, heard. The difference, though, is that uh, Vandy beat Texas in Texas, whereas this game was in Iowa City. Yeah, but it was at the state fair, so there was a lot of distractions for that Texas team. They were eating funnel cakes, you know. Well, apparently that was the largest, uh, the most attended game at that time, the most attended game ever in the state of Texas. Well, there's a monster truck rally right after it. So. <laughs> what, uh, mo- Monster Model T's? Yep, and then, oh, like, a great 1980s band was there, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Twist- Twisted Sister? <laughs> yeah, that's what all state fairs are like. Pretty much. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the Irish wouldn't lose again until the final game of the following season against Nebraska. So, interesting enough, the Hawkeyes were somewhat of a bugaboo for the Irish. They didn't play again until 1939, and in 1940, and the Hawkeyes won both games. So they, the first three games they ever played Notre Dame, they beat them. The and Irish, there was a year. There was a year where Iowa played Notre Dame, and it was a tie game. But Notre Dame did all these fake injuries. Mm-hmm. So the, the first, the first, the Irish finally got over the Hawkeye hurdle in 1945 by a score of 56 nothing. Well, we were busy fighting in World War II while Notre Dame people were being un-American draft dodgers. Yeah. So so following this big upset, the Hawks won their homecoming game over Illinois. um, And this Illinois squad was pretty good, too. They were two years removed from a national title, and uh, they beat their neighbors 14-2. to This was their first win over the Illini since 1907. Uh, On October 29th, the Hawks finally had an away game. Uh, Their first away game wasn't until their fourth game of the season when they went to West Lafayette. and beat the Boilermakers 13-6. to They followed that up the next week with a win at Minnesota, 41-7, to um, in what was Minnesota coaches Henry L. Williams last year as coach of Minnesota. That was his worst loss as a coach there. Um, it's good. Yeah, Iowa has done some nice things to Minnesota. We also let them close the Metrodome with a 55 to nothing win, I believe. I like that. Yeah, we tore down their goalposts one time, so... You know, Iowa just always does really nice things to the Gophers. So, uh, Iowa, though, their star player that year was Aubrey Devine. Yeah, Um, Aubrey. In the game against Minnesota, he had 484 total yards, four rushing touchdowns, two passing touchdowns, and five extra points. Um, He followed that up with uh, 
uh, with a home victory over Indiana in which he had another huge game um, with another four rushing touchdowns. Um, they beat Northwestern in Evanston on their final game of the year, 14 nothing, and they were invited to play in the Rose Bowl but were forced to turn it down by the Big Ten. Really budgetary reasons. Uh, the board in control of the university opposed postseason competition, and the big they appealed to the Big Ten, but the Big Ten ruled in favor of, of the board and not the team, despite the, the pleas from the Jones and the squad. So, for the season, the Hawks were seven and zero. They should have done that last year against Stanford. Uh, they were seven and zero and outscored their opponents one hundred eighty-five to thirty-six. So, nice. there you have it. We have, six, right. we have six teams with national title claims and no clear-cut winner. So we've got Cal at 9-0-1, Washington and Jefferson at 10-0-1. Their ties uh, were against each other in the 0-0 Rose Bowl. We have uh, Vandy, who were 7-0-1, their tie against Georgia, who was a very strong team that year. And then three undefeated, untied teams in 8-0 Cornell, 9-0 Lafayette, and 7-0 Iowa. So, Josh... It is now the moment of truth. We have to decide who is the rightful champion for the 1921 season. Well, I feel like for all these teams but Cal, you went into their record against teams, like talked about how good their teams were. So I feel like... Okay, well... well, I feel like the Pacific Coast Conference was really weak. Well, I, I will tell you... um, uh, so aside from their victories over Olympic Athletic Club and the Pacific Fleet of the Navy, um, uh, they beat a um, they beat a Washington State team that was four two and one, a Stanford team that was four two and two, an Oregon team that was five one and three, a Washington team that was three four and one, a Stanford team that was four two and two. A USC team that was ten and one, um, and uh, but that that was at home, and they beat uh, Nevada, uh, a Nevada team that was. Uh, hold on, um, a Nevada team that was. I cannot find uh, their record anywhere actually. I'm looking at that USC team, and they did not. Their ten and one is a little misleading. Can I read you the 1921 USC Trojan schedule? Yeah, they played the USS Arizona, mm-hmm. and they played the USS New York. Yep, and they played Caltech. Yep, and they played Subbase. Yep, and they played at Occidental, mm-hmm. Occidental, whatever, and they played at Subbase. <laughs> nice. And they played Pomona. Mm-hmm. And they lost the Cal game. Yep. And they played Whittier, mm-hmm. Oregon, Agricultural, and then Washington State. So not exactly the most impressive 10-1 team to ever exist. Yeah, Oregon Agricultural, which is now um, Oregon Agricultural, which is now Oregon State, was um, they were 4-3-2 on the year. Yeah, so I'm not I'm really not feeling that Cal team. I think they even though they had the, even though they had the best um, you know uh, margin of victory, they feel like Boise State. They're playing in a weak conference. It's the old Boise State argument. If you if you had Cal play 
you know, one of these other schedules. And also, all but two of their regular season games were at home. Mm-hmm. And one of the road games was Stanford, which is in essentially the same tap. Yep. And then their other away game was a as a neutral site versus Washington State. Yeah. So, like, unlike Lafayette, who you said had a ton of road games, yep. this Cal team is just chilling at home. They're playing a bunch of teams that played on sub bases. <laughs> but I, I'm sorry, those four services got it wrong. I'm I'm tossing out Cal as the very okay, first. Team. So we're tossing out Cal. I'm tossing out Cal. Yeah. Um, I'm tossing out Washington Jefferson because they didn't really have college players. <laughs> wow. I mean, way to find a loophole. Jeez. <laughs> However, I, I will say they played a tough schedule their first four games were at home or sorry they opened the road at bethany then they beat bucknell at home west virginia wesleyan at home and carnegie mellon at home um by a combined score of 94 nothing yeah then their last six games were on the road at, yeah at lehigh at syracuse at westminster at pitt at detroit mercy and at west virginia What's interesting about them, too, is, like, all these other teams played small schedules, and yet this independent team played 11 games. Mm-hmm. Like, that's four more than Iowa. Mm-hmm. And It would have been three more than Iowa if Iowa had accepted the Rose Bowl bid. But true. if Iowa had accepted the Rose Bowl bid, Washington Jefferson would not have gone to the Rose Bowl. It would have been a Cal versus Iowa. Yeah, and it seems like it seems like that tie for Washington Jefferson is what is really like making people think that they were hot stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of with you. Like Washington Jefferson has a decent argument, but just something doesn't feel right about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, so so we'll, off, we'll, we'll unfortunately cross off Washington J. And then he also only had one service, which is tied with Vanderbilt as the fewest services to recognize that. Correct. Yeah, so that so it seems like people of the day kind of agreed with us, too. Okay. So next we've got Cornell. Yeah, Cornell is undefeated, so they will stick around for a little bit. Okay. All the, all the but, but, Josh, Cornell only played two road games. That's true. That is true. Uh, let's, they, did, they were dominant in their two road games, 41-7 over Columbia and 41-0 over Penn. Yeah, I'm bringing up their schedule again to, to refresh my memory. So, yeah, they only played two games. Um, I'm not seeing Harvard, and Harvard was still pretty impressive in the 20s, right? Yes, very much so. So they didn't play... The big boy. Yeah, Harvard was well, was ha, had a share of the national title from the previous year. Yeah, so Harvard is still a good team. They didn't play them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm not seeing – you mentioned Pitt being a good team back then. They were, they were very good under Coach Pop Warner. They did not play Pitt. No. Nope. Um, Outside of being undefeated, I don't know what what Cornell brings to the table. They had this, they had uh, as along with Cal the most services, giving them the national title. Yeah, uh, refresh my memory. How was Columbia and Penn in those um, two games? 
in that year, uh, uh, Columbia was uh, Penn, well, hold on. That, in that year, uh, Penn was uh, four, th- four, three, and two. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So Penn was having a little bit of a down season. Mm-hmm. And um, so Columbia needs to be like super impressive because I'm ready to to next Cornell. Unless Columbia was like ten and one, uh-huh. which is comparable to the Texas and Notre Dame games. I'm tempted to drop Cornell. Uh, Columbia that year was two and six. So their two best prestigious programs that they played that year on the road were having down seasons. Correct. And they avoided having to play some of the other big-time programs in the Northeast. Correct. I'm fine with dumping Cornell. Okay. So that leaves us with Lafayette. Um, Lafayette that year was nine and zero. Doc Sutherland outscored their opponents two seventy four to twenty six, and uh, they. Um, and the interesting, I actually have not been able to find a game by game breakdown of them. They are the sort of the, the least known of all of them. Interesting. So, yeah. So. Lafayette, um, they had wins. Okay, hold it. So they had wins over Pitt, uh, who was good, Fordham, who was good, Lehigh, who was not that great, Penn, who we know is not that great, but they were road warriors. Um, yeah. um, and I mean, they are the Mount. Oh, no, that's Lehigh. That's the Mountain Hawks. I was about to give Lafayette some bonus points for having a cool nickname, but they are the Leopards. They're the Leopards. So, that uh, year, so they beat Pitt. They won uh, at Bucknell, at Fordham, at Penn, and at Lehigh. Um, Lehigh that year was 4-4. Four four. Um, we, know, we know what Penn did. They also demolished uh, Rutgers, who was 4-5, 35-0. So it's a good se- it's a good season by Rutgers standards. Yeah. So, but undefeated, uh, won a lot of road games. Yeah, they beat Pitt, who went five three and one. Um, in a pretty impressive, uh, you know, two seventy four to uh, two seventy four to twenty six is a pretty good uh, point differential. Yeah, I mean they are undefeated, mm-hmm. which as of now just Iowa. And Lafayette are the two remaining teams. Undefeated, untied. So I'll keep them for right now. So Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt has that tie. Tie with Georgia. <laughs> but Georgia mind, Georgia, mind you, was a powerhouse. Georgia was reigning national champs. They were 7-2-1 seven, seven, and one that year, 6-0-1 oh, and one in conference, um, and uh, were very strong again the next year. Yeah. Um, so... Um, I like to give them bonus points for tying the game on a onside kick from scrimmage. Yeah. I'm curious. So at this point, we almost need to look at their worst teams that they played because all, like all their good teams are good teams. So like, so like Vanderbilt's worst looking team is middle Tennessee state normal. Yep. Uh, And Mercer and Mercer. How was Kentucky that year? 
Um, let's see. Well, that year, Mercer was three and six. Uh, Kentucky was four, three, and one. But, but winless in conference. Uh, oh, two and one. Yeah, in conference. Um, the win, uh, the win at Texas is what I would say that and the Notre Dame win for Iowa are the two most impressive victories for any team. Um, they beat Tennessee, who was six two and one, four one and one in conference. They beat Alabama, who was five four and two, two four and two in conference. Um, they tied Georgia, and they beat Siwani, who was six two and zero, oh, four two and zero oh in conference. And it looks like Iowa's worst opponent was Knox. Um, although the Northwestern and Purdue teams were uh, strikingly similar to current Northwestern and Purdue teams. <laughs> So, um, so I think I, I, it, it, it comes down to these three teams. Yeah, it seems like you want to dismiss Lafayette. Is that true? I think that uh, Lafayette played the weakest schedule of the three remaining teams. And, Just, yeah. And even though um, they were, you know, 9-0, and I still feel like Vandy or Iowa is the true national champion. All right. So... Sorry, Lafayette, you're gone. Okay, so it comes down to Vandy and the Hawks. Well, this pretty much come because, like, okay, Iowa played Knox, Vanderbilt played Middle Tennessee State, normal. I love that it includes the normal still back then. So those cancel each other out. Mercer is terrible, and so is Northwestern. So those cancel each other out. Kentucky was pretty bad. Uh, in conference, but over 500 overall. That is uh, sort of similar to what Indiana was. Indiana yeah. was one, two, and zero in conference, three and four overall. Yeah, so those games kind of cancel each other out. Purdue was one and six. Overall. Yeah, so we'll skip Texas for now. Well, technically, and Notre Dame actually kind of cancel each other out. I know that's, that's going to be my end question for you. So Tennessee was pretty good, six, two, and one. Mm-hmm. Um, that is really better than anything Iowa has. Correct. Iowa has one supremely impressive victory. So Tennessee is a Tennessee is a check in the Vanderbilt column. Yes. Alabama was. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. They Alabama was five four and two, two four and two in conference. They're basically the same as Minnesota. Yes. Yeah, so that so those that game cancels out then also. Uh, Georgia was the tie and was a very impressive game as well. Correct. And then uh, Sony, whatever it is. Also impressive. Yeah. So here is the question then. Because, like, Iowa's hanging their hat on Notre Dame. So Notre Dame, would Notre Dame have beaten Georgia – Tennessee, Sawney, and Texas. Yes. So, therefore, it comes down to a classic argument of, like, trying to think of a recent, like, a recent uh, bowl game where this was kind of the case. Where, like, you know, Iowa has an okay schedule, but, like, beat Ohio State. Yes. And Vanderbilt beat, like, a bunch of teams ranked, like, 15 to 25. Correct. So that, mm, that's a tough one. 
It's too bad Iowa couldn't have played Chicago that year. I know Chicago was very strong that year. Uh, they were six six and one, uh, four and one on, in the in conference with their only loss, uh, uh, with their only loss coming to. Actually, I can't. Um, here we go. Um, with their only loss coming to. Um, uh, the uh, Ohio State. Hmm. Uh, so, so yes. So I know I'm going to sound like a homer for saying this because I think I'm going to go with Iowa, and here's why. So, real quick, I just now looked at these uh, governing bodies that awarded the national titles. Uh-huh. So Iowa had two. Vanderbilt had one. Um, and, no, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. So Iowa had was co-champions by the Davis guy mm-hmm. who gave it to, like, four teams, you said. Uh, Davis that year gave it to uh, Cornell, Iowa, and Lafayette. So three, three teams. Yeah. And he did it in the present, like, immediately. Correct. Like, he was... If he was alive today, he'd be an AP voter. Yes. So he's like, wow, these three teams are really good. And, um, like, he seems to be kind of in the know. And he did it immediately. Did not need to think about it. Mm-hmm. Vanderbilt didn't have that. The um, one thing that's going for Vanderbilt is the Berryman QPRS. Yes. Which is a mathematical rating system. Yes. So this is like the BCS. Yes. It's a computer thing. Um, we don't know what all things go into it. So that's a little weird. Like, he considers strength of schedule, win-loss, points scored, and points allowed. But... As you mentioned, Vanderbilt, you know, they did not allow many points because they played like Middle Tennessee State, shut them out. Mercer, shut them out. Like, yeah, they had some other nice shutouts, but like they racked up uh, 76 points in their first two games mm-hmm. against, against Cupcakes. So that would skew the Berryman towards them. Yes, but you would also think that would skew the Bearman even more towards Cal. True. But since it considers strength of schedule, and we just went through Cal's poor strength of schedule. Yeah. So the Bearman, I'm always a little hesitant with just formulas because you put all the data in and spits out a team. Now, I'll I'll give them the the benefit of this, though. The, The QPRS is currently recognized by the NCAA, Whereas Parker H. Davis's stuff isn't. Yep. But this is the this is the like trump card that Iowa has is they were the sole national champion of the Billingsley Report. Mm-hmm. And reading about the Billingsley Report, this was developed in the 1960s mm-hmm. to determine champions back when things were all super duper weird. Mm-hmm. And it is another mathematical system, but it's looking at things retroactively. Mm -hmm. So 
it's kind of doing what we're trying to do here on our podcast already. And what's interesting about this is the, it says that the main feature of the system is including a unique rule for head-to-head competition and the overall system consisting of a balanced approach to wins, losses, strength of schedule, and home field advantage. So it's kind of throwing out the junk of margin of victory. It doesn't, it doesn't matter in this if you beat a team 6 nothing. That's a really good team. Or 60 to nothing, yeah. Or or kill a cupcake 60 to nothing. So I think as we saw with other systems that use margin of victory, that's not a very good distinction. Correct. Because if you were better than another team, you would route them. Yeah. So Billingsley seems to make sense, and it is also recognized by the NCAA. So Iowa has the dude in the present and the dude looking at stuff in the past. So it has two to Vanderbilt's one and the weakness of Parker H Davis is balanced out by the Billingsley also being recognized by the NCAA. So, so I would say one a is Iowa and one B is Vanderbilt. Okay. I would, I would switch that. I would say one A is Vanderbilt and one B is Iowa because um, the the five teams in the Big Ten that Iowa beat were the bottom five teams of the Big Ten. Can only beat who you play, baby. I know, but they didn't play Chicago, Ohio State, Wisconsin, and Michigan, all of whom yeah. were the only other teams over 500. So now, for me, that kind of weighs their strength of schedule. They have one great win, like one like supremely great win. But it's, but you know, you know, even if you say that the Notre Dame win is more impressive than the Texas win, which they're pretty darn close as far as I'm concerned. But even if you say that the Notre Dame win is slightly better than the Texas win, you have to take into account that Vandy, Vandy played better teams. It's too bad that Vanderbilt didn't beat Georgia or that Iowa didn't play the Rose Bowl. Yeah, because that would have solved all this. You're right; it would have. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't. Yeah. So, uh, will this change your opinion at all on uh, how impressive that Texas win is? Because I'm looking at Texas's schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, they played St. Edwards. Yep. Austin. I don't even know what that is. Howard Payne. <laughs> uh, then they played Vanderbilt. Yep. Then they played Rice. They played Southwestern Texas. Yep. And they played the Mississippi Aggies. Which is Mississippi State. Yeah, and Texas A&M. They, they went 6-1-1, one, and one, but they only played two conference games, 1-1 one, one, and tied one. Mm-hmm. And uh, those very first three teams, whatever they are, is so small or so insignificant or something that they do not even have a Wikipedia page for me to click to. Yes. Nor does Southwestern. Yeah. So, yes, actually, that, that, that does skew my answer. Um, that actually, you know what, that actually may be enough to tilt me and have us come to a consensus that Iowa is the one true national champion. I'm curious now about Tennessee and Georgia. I'm bringing them up, too. So Tennessee 
played Emery and Henry, Merrillville, mm-hmm. Chattanooga, at Dartmouth. And they lost at, at Dartmouth. Yeah, at the Alumni Oval in Hanford, New Hampshire. Have you been to the Alumni Oval? Uh, that no longer exists. Well, that's unfortunate. Uh, they beat Florida. Florida was a good team that year. They were 6-3-2, and 4-1-2 and two in conference. They lost the Vandy game. They beat Mississippi A&M, beat Sawney, and a tie to Kentucky. And that Siwani team is uh, the, the Sewanee team is good too. I'm curious why, when the big schools broke off, why they weren't allowed to uh, join them. Um, because uh, the Siwani uh, de-emphasized athletics. No, oh, another one of those dumb presidents. Uh, that Florida Gator team, by the way, they had some interesting games. They played Fort Benning. Uh, so they played a fort. I love that. Teams like to, would just go to a military base and play them. Uh, at Fort Benning, at Rollins, uh, Carlstrom Field. Uh, uh, something. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's an Air Force base. Okay. Uh, Mercer at Tennessee, at Howard. South Carolina. They played South Carolina at a neutral site in Tampa, Florida. And played to a tie. Yeah. Um, but that was a decent South Carolina team, 5-1-2. Yeah, yeah, they were a decent team. So, yeah. Okay, earlier when I said I wish I had a time machine to see how weird this football was, I wish I had a time machine to go back and uh, have Iowa play in the Rose Bowl. Oh, yeah. Because that would just have solved everything. Because if Cal had beaten Iowa, then I think Cal suddenly would be the champion. If Iowa beats Cal then I would say Iowa's the champion. If Iowa and Cal tie, then I would say Vanderbilt is the champion. I would have really loved to have seen in and Iowa. If, and if Iowa, Georgia. Iowa, Vandy, yeah. Cal, uh, Lafayette, uh, four-way playoff. That would have been cool. And if, and if Vanderbilt had beaten Georgia, then it would not have mattered what the Rose Bowl did. Correct. That's how, like... Like that's what if the season had played out the exact same. Like if Cal was destined to always play in a tie Rose Bowl, whether it was against Washington Jefferson or Iowa, mm-hmm. then I would say Vanderbilt's the champion. Mm-hmm. Because then everyone outside of Lafayette, who we already dismissed, would have at least one tie. Yeah. But Vanderbilt's tie was the most impressive. Correct. Yeah. So um but I do think it's fair that Iowa and Vanderbilt definitely have a better argument than all the other teams. I would agree. Um, that, that was, after doing all this research, that was my conclusion as well, that it, it really comes down to Iowa and Vandy, which is, why I, which is why I put them last. Like, if I was filling out my ballot, mm-hmm. I would go Iowa, Vandy, Lafayette, mm-hmm. um, probably Washington Jefferson, mm-hmm. or now Cal. Uh, I would have Cal and Cornell flipped. I think Cornell has the weakest. Um, you think Cornell has the weakest? I think Cornell, I thought I thought Cal had the weakest. No, I think I think Cornell has the weakest. They almost never played away from home. Their two away games were against poor teams. Okay, that's fair. And um, well, I, I was right though when you were waxing poetically about Cal's rugby team that you were just going to be softening the blow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Um, so. Yeah, so let's uh, so retroactively we have determined that Iowa is number one, Vandy is number two, uh, Lafayette is number three, Washington and Jefferson is number four, uh, Cal is number five, and Cornell is number six. So you know what's f- 
frustrating as an Iowa fan. What's that? Is uh, we don't claim any of these titles. Yep. And, like, Alabama claims anything. Like, if one poll says, like, oh, hey, they were champions in 1916, Alabama adds that to their talent. So Alabama doesn't even need those random titles because mm-hmm. they would still have, like, seven without it. But instead, Alabama's like, oh, we're 22-time national champions. Yeah. For Iowa, we don't even recognize the 21 team or the 22 team, and the 22 team was also recognized by Billingsley. Mm-hmm. And the 58 team, everyone says LSU is the national champion. And, but Iowa um, won the Rose Bowl, and LSU lost their bowl game. So all the polls that came out after, the AP didn't recognize bowl games. Yep. But all the other polls did. But, so, Iowa, but Iowa had a loss and a tie during the regular season. Yeah. That year. But, that, that, that was Abyshevsky's best, the, one of his best teams. Yeah. But the AP poll says LSU was the top national champion. And everyone, every other poll said Iowa was the champion. Mm-hmm. And yet, people always refer to LSU as being the champion. And the University of Iowa, like, barely even addresses it. Like, I bet I could talk to a bunch of Iowa fans and be like, hey, do we have a single national title? And I would say you'll get probably six that say one and four that say none. And no one will say, oh, we've got like three or four. Yeah. It's just weird. I don't get the rationale of just like honoring these teams. You don't need to like put up banners or something weird. Like, you know, you don't have to make a big show of it, but like, the fact that we were the best team, you know, we went back-to-back undefeated years in 21 and 22, and, like, that's never really talked about. Mm-hmm. It's just weird. Like, we talk more about the 1939 team, which had a Heisman winner, but I'm not sure they even won the Big Ten that year. Uh, the 1939 team? Um, the 1939 Iowa team... Um, was um, yeah, they finished uh, second they, to Ohio State. Yeah, they uh, they finished. They were ranked number nine in the country to end the year, but they were second to Ohio State. Um, at yeah, because they were four one and one in conference. Ohio State was five one and zero. Oh. Yeah, wax at Michigan that year. Yeah. So, well, that's sort of so that's it for us today. Um, it's, that was an awesome story. I love that. Uh, good. I, I I thought you would like it. So, um, I, you know, I, I put a fair bit of work into it, as you could tell. Um, and, but it was really fun to go down and sort of suss all this out. And what's crazy is like, you know, you picked the year that had six teams. You picked one of the record setting years, mm-hmm. but like, I bet if we looked, I bet like 1920 probably had four. Like they had four. Yeah. yeah. Like you, all you can do this around there have four or five basically. Yeah. So you right. know, Cal wins national titles from twenty through twenty-four. They win five straight, um, but you know, all of them are shared. Yeah. So. 
So, yeah. Awesome. So that is the 1921 football season for you. Um, and with some... The, the with short punt. <laughs> with the short punt formation and some pretty phenomenal names. <laughs> so... Um, How would Cosell here at the 1920 football game in a short punt formation? I mean, it's the most important formation in in sport, in, in football. Whoa, Keith Jackson here at the 1921 Rose Bowl. Another quick punt by the Washington Jefferson Presidents. Whoa, Nelly Cal returned the favor with another short punt. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so there you have it. So uh, that's gonna, that's gonna do it for us here on, uh, this, uh, very special edition of Legal Motion. So, um, you can check back with us for our normal shows next time, but, uh, we thought you guys might, uh, appreciate the divert, the, uh, midweek diversion. Yeah. So, um, any last words, Josh? Well, I'm just glad that we got to, uh, learn all those crazy names and the third thing i'm going to do with my time machine is ask andy smith what the hell his parents were up to yeah um and i'm gonna go uh check out some magoogans <laughs> yeah you're gonna go down to go down to long beach just set up a tent tent be like that beach bum bro and look at some magoogans <laughs> all right that'll do it for us today so uh Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.